This morning, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or you can find the passage printed uh, on the insert that's in your bulletin. One side includes some notes about guidelines for the reception of the Lord's Supper, which we'll take in a few moments, and the other side has the passage on it. Um, We are going through a a very brief uh, series right now during the Christmas season, and in this series, we're trying to look together at the transforming power of Christmas. Because you see, the Christmas story, it's a story of God being actively involved in mission. It's the story of God, the God who came to His broken creation to redeem that broken creation. And, and, and here's the deal. When we find ourselves believing and trusting in that story, and when when we find our when we realize what Jesus has done for us and we are captivated by the beauty of that story, it begins to bring about real transformation in our own lives. Because this story that we're talking about, the Christmas story and the gospel, it has the power to do two things. It has the power at the same time to bring healing into our lives, right? But at the same time it sends us out in order that we would bring healing to others. And now this morning I want us to look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to see how the Christmas story can change us from the inside out and really transform us to become a radically generous people. And just a little context before we read this passage. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Christians in the city of Corinth, right? And he's encouraging them to give financially to help care for the poor in Jerusalem, And a big part of that encouragement, as you'll see as we read this passage, it comes by his explaining how and why the churches in Macedonia gave so generously of their wealth. Um, so let's begin by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and starting in verse 1. This is God's holy and inerrant word. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Father, we come before your throne of mercy and grace to plead for your help to be given to us by your spirit that we would hear your word, that we would understand your word, that it would be applied to our lives, that we would not only be hearers, but also doers of your word. 
Father, we pray and plead with You that we would hear Your voice with power this morning. That we would hear the voice of the One who when He came into this world and was made flesh, it was by the power of His voice that He called to the deaf and they were made to hear, the blind and they were made to see, the lame and they were made to walk. It was by the power of His voice that He spoke into death itself, into the tomb, and called the dead to life. Father, we need to hear Your Word with that kind of power this morning because some of us come this morning and we find ourselves heavily burdened with the cares of this life. We find ourselves distracted and anxious about the week to come. Some of us find ourselves wondering where you are in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering and hardship. Some wondering and remembering perhaps a time where felt as though they walked close with you and really knew you. But now you seem so far off and are wondering if you can ever have that again. Still others come and find themselves full of questions and doubts and skeptical of the truth of Your Word. And much of it is on a personal level, wondering if this Gospel, this good news of Jesus coming into the world to redeem His people, wondering if it can be true about them because when they look into the mirror, they see the huge gulf, the great distance between what they claim to be and what they actually are. Father, however we come this morning, whatever our struggles are, whatever burdens we have, whatever's going on right now in our lives, we pray that You would help us to see this morning that we're really all on the same level playing field. That we're really all alike the symptoms differ because the truth is we are all far more broken than we know. We've all fallen short of your glory. And so together we stand in need of your mercy and your grace. Together we are hungry to hear the good news. Needing to know that though we are far more broken than we can imagine because of Jesus and His person and work. At the same time, we are also far more loved and far more accepted and far more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray this morning as we look into Your Word that You would allow us with the eyes of faith to see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, I know that it is uncomfortable for many of us um, this morning uh, because you can just look at the title, uh, Radical Generosity, and and the things that I said beforehand and know that we're going to be talking about money this morning, and that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But if you take the time to read through the gospel accounts and the ministry of Jesus, you will realize that absolutely one of his favorite topics was that of money. I mean, he talked about it all the time, way more than he talked about sex or politics 
or even the church or even hell. He talked about it a lot. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about money and its use. And, and he weaved that topic of money into his storytelling and so on and so forth. But let me just pull out a couple of things for you. And it's this. Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you'll understand that Jesus saw that money is never just money. right? He saw money as a power. As a power that can either enslave and destroy your life or or one that can bring healing into this world if you would let it go and give generously and that's why jesus when he was talking about money he would often personify money right and he would say things like you cannot serve both god and money he saw money as a power negatively could be at work in your life as a master but positively If you are free from serving money as a master, it could be used to build God's kingdom and advance his kingdom. And see, I think this is why Jesus talks so much about money. Because like nothing else, money really does reveal the condition of your heart and of mine. It's why Jesus would say things like, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your relationship with your money It is a window into the condition of your heart. Either you're mastered by it. And by the way, to be mastered by it, you don't have to have a lot of it, right? You can be, you can not have very much and still be mastered by it. Anxious to get more and envious of those that have and scared to lose what you have. So either you're mastered by money or or you're free from it. It's mastery. And, and, And you can actually be a steward of what God has given you. And you can release it generously into the world to bring healing, and to bring redemption into this world. Now, I'm throwing out some big concepts, and I'm doing it very briefly without very much explanation, but I'm mainly trying to say to you at the beginning this morning is that your relationship and my relationship to our money, it is a big, big deal. It's a big deal in the Christian life. It's a big deal for Jesus, and it ought to be a big deal for us. In this passage, it's a tutorial for us on how we can find freedom. How understanding the Christmas story and how understanding the gospel can set us free and transform us from the inside out to be radically generous people. How we can find freedom to be what we were really meant to be. Because when God made man, he didn't make man to be in bondage to his creation. He made man to be a steward over all he had made, to use it for good and to use it for his glory. So I want to look at this passage together under three headings. I want us to see... The grace to give, I want us to see a lawless obligation, and I want us to see finally a liberating poverty. Okay, first, grace to give. And what I want us to understand in this first point is that giving is a gift from God. Right? Giving is, another way to put it, giving is a result of God's grace at work in your life. See, see how Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 1 about the grace that God gave the Macedonian churches. And then you get into verse 2, and we find that the grace that God gave to the Macedonian churches was this, rich generosity. And then in verse 7, you see that Paul, he encourages the Corinthians to excel or to abound in this grace of giving. Okay, giving is a result of God's grace. When grace, when undeserved forgiveness, undeserved acceptance and love finds its way into your heart, Paul is saying it explodes outward in generosity to others. 
And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look what God's grace did to the Macedonians, right? Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Right? They, they came to Paul and begged Paul for an opportunity to give and to serve others with their money. They desperately wanted to let their money go and to participate in God's work of redemption in the world, what he was doing in the world. Now, if that sounds odd to you, and it it probably does, that someone would come begging for an opportunity to give their money away, because after all, we are Americans. Um, But look at verse 2. It says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. You see, the translators there, they have to translate that extreme poverty. Because Paul isn't using a word there that just means poor. He is using a word that means down to the depth of poverty. He is saying these were the poorest of the poor, and in the midst of that extreme poverty, and in the midst of facing persecution, they, were, they, they weren't just looking for an, an excuse to give their extra money away. Because they didn't have any extra money, Paul is saying. As one commentator writes, the Macedonians had not prospered and given from their surplus. In other words, they weren't giving, skimming off the top, right? Out of their Christmas bonus, right? When you and I give from our surplus, what it means is that we give, but it doesn't alter or change our lives in any way. For you to give out of your surplus means that you're giving... But you're still going to the same restaurants, still driving the same cars, still wearing the same clothes, still taking the same vacations. It's not cutting into your lifestyle. They were giving out of their poverty and it was cutting into their lifestyle. Verse three, they gave beyond their ability, Paul says. And all of this just for an opportunity to participate in being a part of God's redemptive purposes in the world. Now, there is this great story in Luke chapter 19. Um, And it's about a man named Zacchaeus. It's a familiar story among children a lot of times. And we don't have time to go into all the details of that story except for to say that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And he made his living off of cheating other people. And he actually made a very good living for himself. Uh, As you read through that passage, you find out that he's a very wealthy man. But then Zacchaeus met Jesus in his grace. And you can guess what happened. Grace exploded outward in generosity to others after he met Jesus and understood the grace of Jesus. He took half of his possessions and he gave it away to the poor. And out of the remaining half of his wealth, he committed to paying back all those people that he had cheated, but not just paying them back, paying them back four times, 400% the amount he had taken in the first place. See, it was more than just... Grace wasn't just about him making amends in this life. It was exploding in radical generosity outward to others. And what I'm saying to you about this man Zacchaeus, he was really set free. Some of you hear this stuff that that we're saying and you think that's crazy. Giving out of extreme poverty, you know, changing my lifestyle so that I can give even more. I mean, giving beyond my ability, you know, you're sitting here thinking, that does not seem wise. Um, Let me ask you this. Why would someone like Zacchaeus steal from others to build wealth for for himself in the first place? I mean, you know what money does for you. 
right? Because money, if you have enough of it, it gives you a broader range of, cho- broader range of choices in this life. It feels like you can control more of what's going on. It feels like it gives you security, makes you feel powerful, you know, saving for rainy days and all that kind of stuff. It provides you with comfort and on and on we could go. But after Zacchaeus met Jesus, he was somehow free from needing money for power and security and freedom and comfort and control. And it was the same kind of thing that happened to the Macedonians and why they were able to give out of their poverty, not out of their wealth, but out of their poverty. Grace came in and it set them free and it transformed them into radically generous people. And so I'm asking you this morning, what about you? I mean, are you giving like that? Do you give like that? And if you're only giving out of your surplus, what does that reveal about the condition of your heart. Is your heart really free? Okay, second, I want to see in this passage, lawless obligation. Sounds like a weird way to phrase a point, but here's why I'm calling the second point lawless obligation. In verse 7, Paul is telling the Corinthians, right, they excel in many things, and that's great. But he also says, but make sure, after that list of things he tells them that they're doing so well, he says, make sure... Sorry about that. Um, He says, make sure that you excel in this grace of giving. I mean, here, Paul wants them to give, right? I mean, the whole point in this section of his letter is to raise financial support. This is a fundraising letter that's in the middle of your Bible, right? You should give your money, he is telling them. But as soon as that gets established, Paul turns around and in verse 8 he says, but I'm not going to command you anything. Right. There's an obligation, but Paul isn't going to attach to it a rule or a law to follow. And I think it's like this. I think it's like kind of like Paul knew the Corinthians and kind of like he knew the people of Grace Community Church, because it's almost like he he's overheard our thinking in that last point when we started to think, okay, well, how much should I give and starting to do the little calculations? You know, what's the rule about giving that I should follow if I'm supposed to give? And it kind of seems like this, this might have been a great opportunity for Paul to say, hey, it's 10% people. That's the rule, the tithe. If you're not a Christian or you're new to the church, the word tithe that gets thrown around a lot. And by the word tithe, people usually are talking about giving 10% of their income to the church, right? Now, that's a very clear rule, the law to follow. It's very easy to measure. And the Bible does talk about a tithe a lot of times in the Old Testament. It was required 10% giving out of your annual income. But then you get to the New Testament, right? And it's really, really hard to find any references in the New Testament to a 10% tithe. And I think it's because once you cross from the Old Testament into the New Testament, everything is exploding outward and upward. The Old Testament 10%, it was the rock bottom minimum expectation. It is to be the starting place for your giving and mine. To paraphrase a question from another preacher, are those of us who live on this side of the cross, I mean, knowing the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem this world through His own Son, are we more or less indebted? Are we more or less responsible than the Old Testament believers to give radically and generously. Obviously, we're more indebted, we're more responsible because what we know, being on this side of the cross, 
is that Jesus did not come and save the world by tithing his blood. He gave it all to save the world. See, you know what Paul is doing here by not giving us a rule? He is saying your giving is ultimately a matter of the heart. Right? Verse 80 says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. If you want to test the sincerity of your love, the way to do it is to get online with regions or whoever your bank is and pull up your bank statement and find out about the sincerity of your heart. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to myself, too. We're all in this. We all want sermons that have lots of great application, right? Except for when it comes to stuff like this. Then we want it to be really broad and vague. Here's the, this is very simple this is very simple math. This is not algebra equations, right? Pull out your bank statement. Your relationship with your money reveals the condition of your heart. Either we are a slave to it, and that's reflected in our bank statements, or we are free and radically generous with what is God, has gi- God has given to us, and that's reflected in our bank statements. A-, a long time ago, I told you about how when uh, my family lived in Mississippi, we started having some plumbing problems at our house. And um, at at first, the sink in the kitchen started backing up, and then the washing machine started backing up, and then the bathtub, and I mean, things were, it was a problem. Um, So not knowing anything about plumbing, I called the plumber and said, you know, come over here, tell me what's going on. Next Next thing I know is that there's a backhoe in my backyard, and it's ripping up my backyard, and they've ripped out a chunk of that concrete slab patio that I loved in my backyard, just destroyed it in order to get underneath the house. Because, see, we were able to identify the problem on the surface, right? The sink, the washing machine, the bathtub. I apologize. Try and ignore that if you can. Um, But it was real. what was on the surface was really revealing a problem deep under the surface, right? And if we were going to have a sink and a washing machine and a bathtub that didn't back up with water, someone had to get under that concrete slab in my backyard. And someone had to come in and fix the real problem, right? Looking at your bank statements and spending your time thinking about what you do, in fact, do with your money. It is a great place to start. It's a necessary place to go. But it isn't the ultimate issue. I mean, that's why Paul never in this passage, he's talking about raising financial support and he never mentions dollar amounts, right? He doesn't tell you exactly what the Macedonians gave out of their poverty. He doesn't tell you exactly what he's, he, he wants the Corinthians to give. Because ultimately your giving, whatever it is, or your lack of giving, it reveals what is going on underneath and in your heart. And if you and I are going to find freedom, someone has to come in. And crack that slab, that hard slab that is covering our hearts. Someone has to get underneath and address the real issues and radically change us from the inside out. And that brings me to the last point this morning, liberating poverty. Bear with me. I I really enjoy listening to good comedians. Um, I'm not going to try and tell a joke now because it was just totally wrong. Uh, It wouldn't even be funny. But. The reason I like listening to good comedians is because a good comedian, right, they, they really know how to set up, set up the audience. I'm, I'm not trying to do anything right now. Um, try to be very still. Um, but it's something of an art form for these comedians, right? It, it, they are masters of timing, right? And, and they get your mind going in one direction and then, 
at just the right time, they turn everything on you. And that's what makes it, it humorous, right? They get you leaning in one direction and then they come back and they knock you over with something that's completely unexpected. And that's what makes it funny. In some ways, I really do think that's how Christmas and the gospel works. Look, so far we have talked about God, God's grace to give. Generosity is a gift from God, right? And then we saw lawless, lawless obligation, right? No restrictions, no rules or requirements. And if you think about it, those first two points should be very freeing for you and me. Grace to give and lawless obligation. But naturally, what you and I do is we start leaning towards our default motives for change, which really, only, which really can only address the surface of our lives. And the default motives that I'm talking about are things like guilt and shame and fear. And they never result in a generosity that is overflowing with joy, like the Macedonians in verse 2. See, we start to reason from our guilt and should, you know what, you should be better. You, you need to work on not being so selfish. Or, you know, we shame ourselves. What's wrong with you? You are so greedy, so gluttonous, so stingy. Or we use fear to press in on our hearts, right? Trying to change ourselves from that direction. We say, what if people knew that really I only want, ever want to give the minimum requirement? I don't ever want to go beyond my ability. We are leaning in and looking for those default motives to change us. But that is absolutely not where Paul takes you and me in this passage. He doesn't say to you, look in the mirror. He says to you, look at Jesus. Right? You are leaning one way and Paul comes in and he knocks you over with unexpected grace. He says, for you, Jesus became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the key and that's how he gets all the way under that hard slab and to your heart. That's how he gets underneath to the real things that are driving you in this life so that you can become radically generous. Look at verse 9. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, we tend, as middle class Americans, we tend to read through a certain lens the Bible. And a lot of times we apply that to how the Bible talks about Jesus' poverty. And we tend to try and relegate it to, to the realm of metaphor. Right? But the scriptures are constantly pointing out to you and me. Jesus' actual poverty in this life. I mean, his parents could not find a room at the inn for him. You know, if you have enough money, there's always a room available. They spent the night in a stable and gave birth to Jesus in the stable. He was born in a dirty stable. You know, when it was time to dedicate Jesus at the temple, right? They came and they took the offering that was only allowable for the poorest of the poor, two pigeons, into the temple. Jesus, throughout his lifetime, he uses the language of homelessness to describe himself. You know, he says foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He left glory in the splendor of heaven and became literally poor for you. You've got to let that sink in. It's not guilt, but grace that Paul wants you to see. The king of kings, he set aside his glory, his riches, his comfort, 
and he was born in a dirty stable for you. I mean, it is his poverty that sets you free because Paul is saying he became poor so that you could become rich. And Paul isn't talking about material wealth, wealth in your life. He is talking about the riches of being forgiven, of being adopted, of being accepted, of knowing that we matter to God, of eternal security and acceptance of life itself. And it's when you realize that these riches, they are yours in Christ. And because of his poverty, that you can finally be free from looking to money to give you the things that only he can give you. We find ourselves looking to our money to provide us with comfort and security and control of the present or the future or our identity or freedom. And Paul is saying, if you realize that it has all ultimately been given to you through Jesus, who became poor for your sakes, you will find the freedom to become radically generous. What he was willing to do for your sakes took him all the way to the place of ultimate giving and ultimate loss in your place. When he died a shameful death for you on the cross, and when he lost his life for you, he released redemption into the world, right? And when that becomes real to you, and, and I'm talking about not when it just becomes real to your mind, but when it becomes real to your heart and you understand that Jesus became poor for you, generosity will explode outward in your life out of overflowing joy. You know, we're talking about money this morning, and it's hard to even just scratch the surface of this topic. Let me make two final applications this morning. First, the Bible's view of money, it doesn't fall in either the politically conservative or liberal camp. Right? It's a whole other approach to money. Because the Bible sees that you are made to own part of the world. That God made you a steward in this life. And that is your dignity. That is being made in the image of God. But if you don't live generously with what God has given you and made you a steward over, it is going to destroy your life. Our dignity is found when we realize that everything we have is a gift from God. And we are meant to use it for His glory and the good of others. Right In verse 5, the Macedonians, they understood this. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with and second, a little church government for you. Um, God gave to the ministry of, the of his church the office of deacons. And if you didn't know, the deacons are charged with collecting and distributing the gifts of God's people. The church, broken as she is, is God's institution for bringing the hope of redemption and the joy of the gospel into the world. And to bear on the lives of broken people. Your goal and my goal should be to give so generously that these officers in the church, they aren't wrestling over how to meet the budget. But they are wrestling and they are forced to their knees to beg for God's wisdom. To know the best way to use the resources of God's people to bring the gospel to bear in word and deed. Because you have given them so much to work with. Do you understand the gospel? What does your relationship with your money reveal about your heart? Take the gospel in and let it transform you 
into being radically generous. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, that is what You are. You are a God full of grace to people who do not deserve it. God, we pray that You would help us this morning to realize that we belong to You. And that everything we have is a gift to us from Your hand. And Father, we pray that You would keep us free. That You would untangle the motives of our heart. That place us under, under the mastery of money. And that You